All right, well, as we return again today to our study of the life of Jesus as John presents him to us in his gospel, we return as well to what's become known as the upper room. And it's called the upper room simply because when you go to the gospel of Mark, Mark calls it an upper room. He talks about the fact that it was a guest room located on the second floor of somebody's home. And so the, the significance of the room is really not derived from the name, although it sounds kind of spiritual and cool, it's the upper room. But, but really, it's derived from what happens in the room. What happens in the room is incredibly significant. This is the room that Jesus gathers his guys one last time together in. And what's interesting is that through John's gospel, John invites us in too. And we've seen that. I mean, we've spent, this will be eight weeks now in the upper room. I don't know if you noticed, but as we've traveled through this gospel, it moves pretty quickly and we've been moving pretty quickly unless until at least we got to the upper room, at which point John slows way down. He spends a lot of time with us in the upper room, and he uses language that's very careful, very descriptive, and very inviting. It's like he's coming to us segment by segment, thing by thing, item by item in this upper room, and he's saying, guys, come in here for a minute, because I want you to see what happens in this room. I want you to hear what is said in this room. This is the night that Jesus will be arrested. Everything done and said in the room is done within hours of the commencement of his sufferings. And so we've been watching. We've been going in. We've been looking at what's going on. We saw, for example, quite a few weeks ago now that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. The Lord of glory washed the feet of his disciples. But in washing the feet of his disciples, what was he doing? Just making their feet clean? No. He was reenacting, in some sense, the whole spectrum of his ministry to his disciples, to me, to you, to everyone who will ever and has ever believed savingly in him. Jesus, John tells us with very graphic, careful, detailed language, did what? He rose from his seat, got up. And then what did he do? He laid aside his clothing, he disrobed. And then what did he do? Well, he took upon himself a different form of dress, did he not? the dress of a servant, and not just of any servant, but of the lowliest of servants, and then he takes a basin of water. Now, what's that? It's a cleansing agent, and he goes amongst these guys that the Father, who has ordained from beginning, you know, before the foundations of the world were laid, would be brought to him, and with that cleansing agent, he humbly, as a servant, washes the filthiest parts of them. He washes their feet. What's the ministry of Christ? And what does the gospel teach us? Well, it teaches us that the Lord of glory, the King of heaven, who sits upon heaven's throne in the center of all things, He's in the center of all things, once upon a time arose from His seat. And and then what did He do? He laid aside the glory of His heavenly splendor. And through His conception and through His birth, He clothed Himself with our humanity, and He entered into us not as a king, not as a rock star, not as a celebrity, but as a Galilean Jew, peasant slave to the Roman Empire, as the lowliest even of the Jews. And He came as a servant. He came and He said things to us like, hey, you know what? I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life away as a ransom for many. He served how? By laying His life down and taking it up again in resurrection so that He could walk amongst us. 
amongst all of the people and all of humanity that the Father brings to Him in faith and with the greatest cleansing agent ever created, an agent that cleanses even the filthiest parts of us, His blood, He makes us clean. He makes us whole. He makes us new. See, he reenacts that in the upper room, and John, with careful language, says, come on in, I want you to see this. This is going to be really cool. You're going to love this. And I do love that. But let me tell you what else I love about it. As Jesus bows at the feet of his disciples, the Lord of glory, the servant washing their feet. He's washing their feet, guys, very clearly knowing that in a few hours, they're going to use those same feet to run away from him. One of them is going to use those same feet to lead his enemies to him, to put him to death. He washes their feet nevertheless. I'm kind of comforted by that. And so we've watched, we've listened. You know, we've listened to some of the questions of the disciples. They pose seven questions during this whole discourse, this whole time, this whole season in the upper room. And Jesus patiently listens to these questions, even though, yeah, it's pretty clear that they're not always on point, in fact, almost never on point. And he listens to them, even though they're coming out of mouths, that Jesus, again, knows full well that within a few hours, okay, one of them will betray him to his death, and another one, Peter, will deny him, not once, not twice, but three times. And please don't think that Peter was the only guy amongst those disciples, all of which who fled for their lives when Judas showed up with all the soldiers who denied knowing Christ. He's just the one written about. Yet the Lord is patient with them. Yet the Lord is loving toward them. And we've listened as well as we've gathered week after week in the upper room with Jesus and His disciples to the teaching that Jesus gives to His disciples, teachings which, yeah, like the questions, help us to understand they don't understand. (laughs) And it's kind of interesting that they don't understand it, like it's frustrating for me because, you know, I teach, and, and so it's kind of like, guys, what's your problem? He has spent three full years pouring His life into you. He has been teaching you about these very same principles, sometimes just in seed form, but sometimes in a pretty fully orbed form. For a long time, he's teaching them to you again now. This isn't new information, and you still don't get it. They don't get it. And so it's frustrating to me, but the Lord doesn't seem to be overly miffed. Today is our last season of time in the upper room with the Lord and his disciples. This is it. The meeting has come to an end, and Jesus is going to close the meeting now in prayer. And I want you to hear what He prays, but before you hear that, I want you to know who He prays for. And I say that because, honestly, if it was me, I'd pray for me. I really would. I mean, you know, the Lord understands that as soon as this meeting is over, that He's now going to close in prayer, where are they going to go? Well, they're going to leave from where the upper room is. They're going to walk through the Kidron Valley. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. They're going to go up onto the Mount of Olives. They're going to go into the Garden of Gethsemane. And shortly thereafter, Judas with a small army is going to show up. And again, all of his guys are going to scatter. And his sufferings for the sins of all of his people throughout all time will begin. Sufferings that he will face, humanly speaking, alone. Because again, the feet are going to run. The mouths are going to deny The hearts and minds don't get, not yet anyway. I'd be praying for me. Jesus, however, 
prays for you. It's really cool. Like I'd be all over on my own heart. I'd be resenting the fact that oh, these guys are going to run for me. I'm doing their feet, you know. Jesus, you're on his heart. You're on the heart of the Savior on the night that he commences his sufferings for you. And so now listen to what he prays. We pick up our study in John 17, beginning in verse 1, where Jesus says this. He says that when Jesus had spoken these words, he's finished his upper room discourse. The teaching is over. The questions have ended. All the object lessons are through. He's going to close it now in prayer. What does John say? He lifted up his eyes to heaven. Now, what is that? That's language of invitation. He's saying, I want you to imagine this. I want you to come into the room. I want you to see the Lord who is yours, and I want you to hear what he's saying what he's praying. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Now, what hour is that? You should know this. He's been talking about this hour all the way through John's gospel, but until now, it hasn't come. Now it's come. It's the hour of his death. It's imminent. It's upon him. It's going to happen. He says, the hour of my death, he's saying, has come. And then he says, and it's really amazing, it's counterintuitive, and it's very cool. He says, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Now, how is this going to happen? Through his death. So you got to kind of back away from that for a minute and just think about it and go, wait a minute, what has Jesus just done here with two concepts that we would never bring together? Death and glory. He brings them together in his own person, death and glory. And he's saying, you know, that glory is going to be found in dying, at least for him. And so in putting Jesus to death, the Father is going to bring glory to Jesus. Now, how is he going to do that? Because he is going, through putting him to death, build the foundation for our eternal praise. We will forever praise and adore and worship the one who gave his life for us. Jesus is glorified in his death, but in willingly submitting to that death, Jesus brings glory to the Father. And how is that? By living out, John three sixteen. for God so loved. What's on display? His love that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is in some sense glorifying the Father by saying to all of humanity and to all of us who are drawn to him in faith and give to him our sin and receive from him his life, this is how much the Father loves you. He loves you so much that he gave me. It's awesome. I was talking with uh, the son of some dear, dear friends of ours this week, and uh, he's a guy that kind of grew up in this church, uh, went off and graduated from college, got married about 14 months ago, and he and his wife have been feeling this really compelling call to full-time overseas Christian missionary work. And so in October, they're going to go on what's called a vision trip. They're going to go over to this particular part of the world, and they're going to meet with the team that's already beginning to assemble, and they're looking at becoming one of 15 different couples that will reach 15 million people in the particular people group in the particular part of the world that he's going to be going to. And so they're scouting it out, and they really believe that, you know, over the next year they're going to be raising support and all that stuff. But as he's telling me all of this, he's saying things to me like, you know, you can't tell anybody where we're going. Thinking, really? Why? It's not safe. Think about that. It is not safe to be a Christian and to walk amongst the people group that he's going to 
much less to worship amongst them, much less to worship amongst them in a way that invites them into that worship. That is met with hostility in this part of the world that he's going to. And frankly, that part of the world is, frankly, inhospitable anyway. I mean, the climate is awful. The weather is terrible. The poverty is outrageous. The the infant mortality rate is 50%. Think about that. Like, how far back in our country's heritage do we have to go to hit a 50% infant mortality rate? This guy can't wait to get there. And I said to him, I said, man, you know, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He's going to give you the desires of your heart. Clearly, this is a desire that could only come from God. Can't wait to go. And I said, you know, I'm just really humbled by what you're doing. And he said, well, <laughs> I said, thanks, but it was an interesting point. He said, we were talking to some missionary friends of ours, and, and what they said was, you know, the sacrifice of the missionary is probably not the one that you ought to be most impressed with. You ought to be impressed even more with the sacrifice of the parents of the missionary. God so loved, well, you, that He sent His Son. It's powerful. And He honors Him by bringing glory out of his death, death and glory come together in the life and ministry of Jesus. But here, here's the truth also. Death and glory come together in my life and in your life as well, at least to the degree that our lives reflect the pattern of the life of Jesus. And what is that? Because we already saw it in the foot washing. It is that Jesus, at some point, got off of heaven's throne and forsook all of its glory in favor of being clothed in our humanity, entering into our world as the consummate servant, one who lays down his life in death, takes it up in resurrection, that literally with his blood, he makes us clean when we come to him in faith. There is a kind of glory for us, guys, but it's a glory that comes in dying. Dying to our glory. Dying to this world's glory. Dying to our little thrones. There's a glory that we can experience, that we can bank, that we can bring to the Father and to the Son, that we can share in and enjoy together with them as they, out of the overflow of their glory, spill their glory down upon us forever and ever and ever. When we do things like, you know what, get up off of our little thrones. They're really pretty little anyway, no matter how big they may seem. And forsake our worldly glory and take the form of a servant. After our master entering into the fray of humanity and all of its issues and messes, because we're all messy, bringing to others the same kind of cleansing, the same kind of life, the same kind of newness, the same kind of forgiveness, the same kind of hope and joy and so forth that we have found through the very same Jesus death and glory. Jesus brings them together, but in a way that's ironic. It's a way that we don't anticipate, and yet it's a way that truly brings glory. You know, as you think about your life and what it is that you're investing your life in, we talk about leverage your life. What are you leveraging it for? Think about it from the end and then just work your way back. When you get all the way to the end, I don't think you want to be 
saying, you know, I, I, I built an earthly throne that I'm now going to give behind, leave behind. I clothed myself with the glory of this world, and that means in this moment, well, nothing. I think you want to be able to say, you know, I gave my life away that I might gain my life. I died in some sense that I might live, and I took what God gave me, and I used it in such a way as to bring Him glory that is eternal and that I will share in forever, thus making a difference. It's different. It's upside down. And so John comes to us and and he says, okay, when Jesus had spoken these words, he's finished with his discourse, the meeting is over, he's going to close in prayer, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, he's saying, I want you to see him and I want you to hear this prayer because it's for you. And he says, Father, the hour of my death has come. And then he says, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, to which he adds, since you have given him, meaning your son, authority over all flesh to do what? To give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. Now, this prayer is about mission. Be thinking mission. And now look what he says about the eternal life of that mission. He says, and this is eternal life, that people will make a profession in faith in me, and they'll be forgiven of their sin and guaranteed that when they die, they go to heaven, and pretty much that's it. It's not it. That's a very little bit of it. But it's the very little bit that most of us focus on entirely. It's kind of like we're moving through life, you know, we're doing our thing, and we want to be sure that, A, we are forgiven of our sin because we're clear about the whole, you know, to err is human thing. B, we've been convicted of our sin by this perfect Jesus and by God, and so there is a fear of the holiness of God and understanding that there's justice, and we've got to reckon with the Lord our God, and we'd like to be at peace with that. And so, see, I need Jesus to do that. I've done that. I can check that off my list. I'm going to go to heaven someday, and Lord, I'll see you when I get there. That's not eternal life. That's like the doorway to eternal life, and a doorway is not meant to be stood in. When people stand in the doorway, they get run over. What is eternal life? The prayer is missional. The prayer is relational. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. We know a lot of false gods. There's one true God, and eternal life is knowing Him. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, to which He adds, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence in heaven. And with what? With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. With the glory that I had before I got up off my throne, laid aside my glory, clothed myself in humanity, entered into the world as a servant, and as a servant performed the ultimate act of servants service, taking upon myself the sins of my people, laying down my life, raising it up in resurrection, that I might cleanse them completely. He's saying, I'm coming home. I will die and then raise me and bring me back and seat me again on my throne. And then he says this, and it's a long passage of Scripture, just warning you in advance. It rewards the diligent listener. It's going to take massive mental energy. So stay with me. There's no quiz at the end, but 
hang. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Now, what does that mean? I told them what your name was? No. He's saying, I have manifested your character. I have manifested your nature. I have taken the invisible God in all of His splendor, in all of His holiness. That's a big idea. And I have myself revealed Him decisively in my person to these people that you have given me out of the world. He says, yours, Father, they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, how did they do on keeping His word? Do they do it perfectly? Do you do it perfectly? I hope your answer is no. Seriously, if it's not, don't tell anyone. It's not, but you do it differently. Have you not responded to the gospel word of Jesus Christ? To the commandments of the Lord, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Have you not responded to them differently than the rest of the world? And if you have not responded to them differently than the rest of the world, are you sure that you're Jesus? Do you belong to Him? Because one of the themes we've been saying is, man, if your faith is real, it shows up in little ways and sometimes in really big ways. It makes a difference. Jesus says, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word, at least differently and better than the rest of the world has received it. And then he says, and now know, or now they know, rather, that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you, what? Sent me. Think mission. So Jesus says, I am praying for them. To which he adds, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours, and in fact, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, these people you've given me. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I am glorified in them, but here's the deal, Father, through my impending imminent death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, I am no longer in the world. I mean, technically, He's still in the world. He's in the room. He's praying the prayer. We're with them. We're listening. But His death is as good as done. His hour has now come. So I am no longer in the world, but they, my people, you guys, us, the disciples, everyone who has claimed Christ throughout the ages, what? Are in the world. It's where we live. And as we'll see, it's not just where we live, it's it is the world to which we are sent, just like Jesus was sent. They're in the world, and I am coming to you and leaving my mission to them. And so now notice what he prays. If we're going to accomplish the mission, this is what he prays for us. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Now, what's that? It's His character. It's His essence. It's His nature. It's His holiness. Keep them obedient to you. Keep them true to you. Keep them full of you. Keep them pursuing you. Keep transforming them that in the midst of this world, in my absence, they might represent you. Your nature. Keep 
them in your name. Holy Father, the name of the Lord God. He says, which you have given me, keep them which you have given me in your name, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the one that it was prophesied about that he would be lost, the son of destruction, Judas Iscariot, of whom it was foretold that one of my own would betray me, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, Jesus says. He's leaving, guys. And these things I speak in the world, that they, these people that I'm about to leave behind to carry out my mission, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. A full, filling joy. It fills us to the full. All right, hang in there. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, meaning set them apart, carries the idea of holiness in the truth. And what's the truth? Your word is truth. And so then Jesus says, as you sent me into the world so I have sent them into the world. Every one of them as a missionary. I've sent them into families. I've sent them into schools. I've sent them into businesses. I've sent them into cities. And sometimes I even send them into places that cannot be named for fear that it will jeopardize them some way. As you have sent me into the world... So I send them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself as I bring to a close this mission of mine, which ends in death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Okay, stop. Let's have a moment of truth. About halfway through, how many of you started, like your brain started smoking and you went, just summarize it for me when you get to the end. Just be honest. It's thick language, isn't it? I mean, it's really, it's heavy. There's no question. There's no getting around it. Um, there's no doubt. So let me kind of summarize it, okay? Bottom line, Jesus is about to return to the Father, and this returning to the Father Jesus, the one who was himself sent, is sending us, isn't he? He's going to leave and leave his mission to us, and so he prays, first of all, that God will set us apart for that mission. And by set us apart for that mission, what he means is set us apart in character, set us apart in nature, set us apart in holiness. God is holy. God is sanctified. God is consecrated. You heard all of these words as we're moving through this prayer, and he's praying these same things of us. Holy Father, make them, you know, keep them in your name. Sanctify them, Jesus is saying. What is he talking about? What is he saying? He's saying, make this people a holy people a different kind of people. To be holy is to be other. God is not just other than us in terms of physicality. Clearly, that's true, but He's other than us in terms of character, nature, essence, purity. He's praying that we would be manifestly, obviously different from the rest of the world. And here's why, because I think that Jesus knows that even the greatest evangelism program in the world is not going to make any difference in the world. If you and I, to whom that program has been entrusted, aren't any different from the world. It's just not. 
I mean, look, you know, if your buddy is going out and getting hammered on weekends and, and you're going out and getting hammered on the weekend, and now you want to talk to him about Jesus, I don't know how effective that's going to be. If somebody you do business with is dishonest and you're dishonest and they know you're dishonest and you know they're dishonest, but now you want to talk about Jesus, I don't have much time that you want to give to that. We need to be different. There's a sense, I think, in which the world is saying to us, hey, guys, don't come and tell us about a Jesus that makes a difference apart from a life in which Jesus has made a difference. Holiness matters. Mission matters. So Jesus prays that God will set us apart in terms of our character for His mission. By the way, He also tells us how that happens. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. There's a reason why we talk so much about the Word here. We are a people of the book. It is our life. It is our guide. It is the vehicle that our Lord uses by His Spirit to shape us, to mold us, to communicate with us, studied personally, studied together, studied in community groups and whatnot. You cannot bear the fruit of the vine who is Jesus apart from the Word, (laughs) of the vine who is Jesus. And so he prays that God will set us apart for his mission in in terms of our character. But then secondly, Jesus prays that we might know his joy in that mission, because just like glory is found in death, joy is found in mission. And by mission, I don't mean the puny little disappointing mission of Tom. I mean the mission of Christ, life-changing mission, world-changing mission, eternity-changing mission. That's where joy is. I think one of the reasons why so many of us struggle with, you know, joy and living these joyless existence in some sense is because we've bought the lie that, okay, we're the mission. In other words, we have bought this lie that says that the supreme value in all the universe is Tom's comfort and Tom's pleasure and Tom's safety and Tom's security and Tom's whatever. And it's not. But when I believe that, when I live like that, when I exaggerate my own significance like that, I lose my own significance. When I make myself the cause, I lose my cause. When I become the mission, all hope of real mission disappears, and with it goes all hope of joy. There's no joy in the (laughs) puny little disappointing mission of me, but there's great joy in realizing that there is one who deserves my all, life and death. There is a transcendent being who has a transcendent mission, which is more valuable than my comfort and security and even my very life. And in pouring myself wholeheartedly into that, whatever that looks like, whether that means, you know, here in the community, in your business, in your school, in your friendships, all of the above, or, yeah, I'm going to go to the country that cannot be named. And like I'm jacked about it. I'm excited. I can't wait to get there. There's joy there. It's interesting. When I talked with him, um, I mentioned that. I said, you know... (laughs) Again, delight yourself in the Lord. Only the Lord could give you this desire. I said, you know what you're doing? I said, you're living in some sense the life of faith because the life of faith says that my life is hid, as we sung today, in Christ. And that no matter what anyone does to me, even if they take it, 
They can't take it. It's safe in Him. We're called to live as those who have eyes that see the unseen realities that the Scripture, God's Word, is truth. It sanctifies us, teaches us about, and holds before us. And to recognize that those are the greatest truths and realities, and that's the world to live for. So just anyway, to be sure that you know this prayer is for you. Having told us that, what, death and calling us to death, He's calling us to glory. In calling us to mission, He's calling us to holiness and true joy. Jesus, to make sure that you know that this prayer is for you as well, verse 20 says this. He says, I do not ask all of this stuff for these guys physically sitting with me in this room in this particular moment only, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word. Now, who is that? That's us. It's the word of these guys that became the New Testament. It's the fruit of their ministry that reverberates around the world even today. We are those people. I don't pray it just for these 12 guys. I pray it for all who will believe in me through their word. And I ask all of this, Jesus says, that they may all be one. And I don't think that means that they may all be Baptists or may all be Methodists or that they all may be Presbyterians. But I think what that means is that they may be all one in mission, that all of us, irrespective of our denomination and of all of our differences and diversities, might wake up to the fact that we are, all of us, a sent people. A sent people. And then live the kind of holy, dying every day unto glory lives that are necessary to be effective in that sending. And so he says again, verse 20, I do not ask all this stuff for the disciples who are here just with me in this room, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And I ask all of this that they may all be one with us in mission is the idea, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe, that's mission, that you have sent me the glory, he says, that you have given me, I have given to them." that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, and they may become perfectly one so that the world may know, this is mission, that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And then I love the next part. It's my favorite part. What does Jesus say next? He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. Now, who's that? Anyone with faith in Christ. Once they've completed their mission, the one that we've sent them on, dying to live, finding glory in death, holiness and joy in mission, what is the heart of the Savior on the night that His sufferings for you commences? It's that someday you'll be with Him. Isn't that cool? Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, he says, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, that's eternal life, and they know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And will continue by my spirit through my word to make it known that the love with which you have loved me 
may be in them, and I in them. End of prayer. Whew. Wow. Lots of verses. Thick, thick language. What is the Lord praying for you? He's praying that, like Him, we might know glory in death. As opposed to the fading, perishing glory of this world that we could spend our whole lives chasing after, that we can chase after glory that doesn't die, that never ends, and that we might die to ourselves to do it, that we might know glory in death. He's praying that like Him, we might be made holy. Why? Because we can't tell the world about a Jesus that makes a difference if, in fact, He isn't making a difference. And how does He make a difference? Your Word is truth through His Word. That's how the Spirit forms and shapes and speaks to us and changes us from the inside out. He prays that we would know His joy in His mission because His mission is the key to joy, not the mission of me. And then finally, Jesus prays that once we've finished His mission for our lives, that we might be with Him and see His glory and know His great love. His great love for us, for me and for you. A love that washes even our filthiest parts, even though, yeah, you know, He knows that we'd use our feet to run from Him more frequently than once listens to all our crazy questions and all our selfish prayers and (laughs) knowing that we use the same mouths, by the way, to deny and, and betray Him even, yet He loves. A love that loves, even though really, honestly, a lot of us have had a lot of teaching over the course of our lives, haven't we? Lots. And yet many of us have demonstrated over and in fact all of us to some degree or another have demonstrated far more frequently than we'd like to admit that our hearts and minds still don't quite get it and sometimes because we don't want to get it. We fear what would make us free and we leave ourselves in bonds. And yet He loves. The Lord Jesus on the night that He is betrayed, the night that He will be abandoned, the night that He will be spoken poorly of, denied, the night His guys will run and prove they don't get it yet, just like us. His heart, nevertheless, is selfless. It's for me and it's for you. And I pray that stirs you a bit and calls you to live for Him. Let's pray.